there's value beyond just simply whiling away your hours reading something for the sake of reading it. There's something that you um, glean from it that uh, is valuable. This is the SparkCast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. James Curtis didn't set out to become a biographer, but his interest in film and his passion for research led him to the job while still in university. What began with curiosity and a bit of luck eventually resulted in his first book, a biography of director James Whale. Though writing never came easily, James continued to pursue his love for research and truth-telling, while also developing a career as an executive in the insurance and computer industries. Over the course of 25 years, James's passion for biographies has yielded eight books, and along the way, his side hustle became his full-time job. We recently spoke with James about his passion for research, overcoming subject block, and why biographies are so important. Here's our conversation with James Curtis. I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about the first half of your career and even going back before that. Where did you grow up? What were you into as a kid? Oh, I grew up in California, uh, Los Angeles area. And uh, in fact, uh, the hospital I was born in is now the site of a public library. So uh, for whatever appropriateness that implies anyway. (laughs) Um, But uh, no, uh, I grew up watching a lot of television and um, that's how I kind of fell into this line of work, although it's only a uh, avocation pretty much. I always uh, had something, a big people's job to earn a living at, but uh, I did these on the side and started in 1975 and over the ensuing half century almost, I've managed to eke out about eight books. So that's my uh, my short story anyway. You, you, you jokingly say that you had an adult job. So what was that adult job? Because I know you've done a couple of different jobs. So what, what was what was that? Well, I, I, was a, I was a marketing executive in the healthcare industry for a while and then in the computer industry. And uh, so I kind of went back and forth between those two disciplines. And did you like doing that? Was marketing something that you enjoyed? Yeah, I had a knack for it, I think. And so uh, th- that worked out nicely. But uh, my wife and I have always been hyphenates. And so I did the writing of the books on the side and it kind of helped me preserve my sanity or what I had of it. So let's talk a little bit about the books because you see, you know, you've been writing since, you know, the mid 70s and you've you know done eight books over the course of your career when did you start sort of putting together this idea that this was something that you could do besides the work that you were already doing to like pay the bills well it was it was it got to the point where i could effectively retire from uh, that line of work and so i could do this full time and so that's essentially what made the decision for me and uh, i had to get used to working from home which sounds strange now given what we've been through the last couple of years but uh, i found i was used to the stimulation of the uh, office environment, the people that are around. And when you're at home, you're kind of talking to yourself or to the cat who is not necessarily a great conversationalist. And so uh, it takes some getting used to. You become a little bit feeble-minded, I think. I, I, I don't think I'm as quick as I used to be, but maybe that's encroaching age as well. I'm not sure. You know, you talk a little bit about how working from home was something that you have to get used to, but I wanted—I really wanted to know about, you know, where this passion, like clearly you always loved entertainment and silent film and TV. When did you decide that this was actually something that you wanted to spend more time doing and actually writing about? 
Well, this comes from my childhood because uh, I, I was an odd kid. I essentially uh, had one functional eye, so my depth perception was very poor. And while other normal kids would be out playing sports, you know, and hitting balls and catching things, uh, I couldn't do that because wherever the ball appeared to be to me was not where it actually was. So I was not, uh, let's say, in demand on teams of various sorts. And so I spent a lot of time watching television, and uh, it was back in the days when you had a very uh, horizontal programming schedule. In other words, uh, uh, there there was if you had we had seven VHF stations in the Los Angeles area, and it was back in the days when you had a mixture of everything on each station. So you had old movies, you had syndicated game shows, you had news, you had, oh, the, the list goes on. We weren't as vertical as we are today where, you know, you have to, if you want to watch old game shows, you have to seek out a specific uh, streaming channel to do that. Or if you want to watch old movies, you've got to find a way to watch TCM or um, something similar. And so I was exposed to a lot of different things, talk shows and the like. And uh, especially when I was a kid going to school, I stayed up late at night. I didn't seem to need a lot of sleep. And so uh, in the middle of the night on in the Los Angeles market, you had um, all night movies that were sponsored by used car dealers. I can still tell you the names of some of the used car dealers, as a matter of fact. So, you know, you saw manner of things uh, at two in the morning. So I consumed a lot of things. And uh, later on, when I became an adult, I went back and revisited some of them. A lot of them didn't hold up. You're, you're impressed by things at the age of seven or eight that you perhaps are not impressed by at the age of 30. But there were things that did interest me that uh, were fascinating to me. And in a lot of cases, it seemed there really wasn't much written or published on these people. And so that's where I, I was always a biography hound. I enjoyed reading them. And so uh, I think that's what got me into it was I wanted to research and write the books that I wanted personally to read. So that's what got me to this point. And the first two people, well, actually, the first guy I was interested in was uh, James Whale, the director. And so uh, this was back in the days, mid-70s, when a lot of people who worked and knew, worked with a new James Whale were still alive. The archival materials weren't terribly great back then. Uh, you had to scrounge for anything that you were able to get, but uh, the people were accessible. They were still living, and they were, for the most part, agreeable to talking to you. So uh, I, I recorded a lot of interviews in 75 or 76 on that subject uh, without really knowing what I was doing, because there were no classes to teach you how to do this. You just had to kind of uh, do it by example from people that you thought did a good job at a similar uh, endeavor. And so uh, that's how I got started. I just kind of bungled my way into it and proceeded to really benefit greatly from uh, presuming to do that kind of work uh, before anybody else took it on. There were two things there that you mentioned that I wanted to ask you about a little bit more. The fact that, you know, at 30, you decided to go back and revisit some of these things that had caught your attention as a six or seven year old kid. What prompted you to do that to begin with? Well, I, I guess I should say more like I was 20 then, I can, I can say that. But well, one thing that prompted me specifically was there was a film festival that uh, took place every year here in Southern California called FilmX. They were based in two theaters in Century City. Century Plaza, to be exact. It was a mixture of new stuff, international stuff, and uh, retrospective stuff. And in 1975, I was going to college and driving a laundry truck to make ends meet. And they did probably 10 programs, I would guess, overall, a tribute to James Whale uh, at Filmex. 
Some of the programs were in the afternoon. One, I remember, was at 12 midnight, and uh, then there were a couple of uh, evening performances. So I made a point of attending those because up to that point, all I had known about James Whale, other than he was a particularly mysterious figure, was the three things you saw on um, television on a regular basis were the three major horror films that he did, which were Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, and The Invisible Man. They were obviously so superior to anything else practically in that uh, category that made me curious as to what it was about him that was so uh, compelling and what made him so right for this kind of material because he essentially set the template for what, what became you know the, the modern horror film of that period. So without knowing what I was doing, I wrote a letter to a man named Max Lemley, who was in charge of the Lemley Theater Group, which is still in existence today. And I knew that he was related to the Lemley family that owned and founded Universal. And so I asked Max Lemley, I, I wrote a letter and said, is Carl Lemley Jr., who uh, produced the James Whale films at Universal, uh, if he was uh, amenable to my uh, coming up and visiting him at some point. And I didn't know what I was, what to expect. And uh, uh, I got a letter back in the mail a few weeks later, and it was signed by Carl Emley Jr. He said, here's my phone number. If you want to come up and visit, uh, give me a call. So I did. And uh, he was, he was terribly ill. He had multiple sclerosis, as I recall. But he was friendly to me. And he said to me, if you want to know about James, well, you need to talk to David Lewis. And so he got David Lewis on the phone and handed me the phone. So that was my introduction to David Lewis, who I learned was a, a very accomplished uh, producer of films and had been James Whale's longtime companion, as they said back then. I remember Carl Lemley Jr. was living in a nice modern single-level house up in the Hollywood Hills, and David was down below Sunset on the, off of San Vicente, and remember him saying, well, come on down if you want to talk about him. And so he gave me his address, and so I, <laughs> I got in the car, and the hills were such that I could have just let out the parking brake and rolled down the hill to uh, sunset, past sunset down, and I uh, knocked on the door of his apartment. And um, he opened the door, and behind him was this enormous portrait of James Whale painting that uh, had been done by uh, Doris Enkhuizen, uh, the great British theatrical designer, in 1936. That painting, as a matter of fact, hangs on my wall. I can see it from my office right now. So that was the start of it. I didn't know what I, I'd never tried writing anything for publication whatsoever. And uh, David said to me, we talked a while, and he said to me, if you want to write a biography of Jimmy, I'll help you. And if I like what you've done, I'll give you your ending. And so that was intriguing. And so I started to do it. And again, I knew nothing about what to do or how to go about it, but I just kind of fumbled my way through it. And uh, it really, uh, really brought a lot of benefits to me over the decades in terms of uh, getting better at it and uh, benefiting a great deal from uh, David's guidance since he had, I learned, had, was famous for working with writers and having a great story sense when uh, he was in his prime when he was producing films at uh, Warner Brothers and MGM. Classics like Dark Victory and Oldest in Heaven 2 and King's Row, things like that. It was a marvelous, you know, fluke education for me. And uh, I realized its value early on and uh, I, I stuck with it. How long did it take you to write that first book? Probably a couple of years, I'm thinking. I would get up every morning because I was going to college and I was working, and I would try to spend an hour at the typewriter. And I didn't know how to type, so I was typing with you know one finger, basically. 
uh, I got somewhat better later on, but uh, uh, at that point, uh, I was I was just doing what I could to try to piece the story together as best I could, and uh, so anyway, I, I got very close to David, and uh, uh, ultimately, uh, he uh, gave me James Whale's suicide note, which cleared up the mystery of what happened to him, and uh, so it was on that basis that I proceeded with other things. And uh, I w- David was a marvelous um, resource for me in the sense that uh, if I got stuck on something like, say, for instance, I could pick up the phone and call him and say, how did Sam Goldwyn talk? And so he would do a quick kind of impression of Sam Goldwyn speaking. And uh, I would say, thank you very much. <laughs> and I'd go back to my work. And uh, so he, he got used to hearing from me like that. But we, we, had a, we had a great relationship. And I was his conservator when he got ill and uh, the executor of his estate, ultimately. You see, you were in college at the time when you were starting to write this first book. Were you taking any classes on writing at all? Or was it all just like basically learning on the job? It was learning on the job. No, I wasn't taking any classes in that. Uh, if I were you know, to do so, it would just have been um, English composition and literature, that sort of thing. It would not have been specifically, here's how you tackle nonfiction or creative nonfiction. And here are the research steps and how you go about it, that sort of thing. There was none of that out there. So, um, and frankly, the resulting book, which was published in 1982, was not very good. I had a good foundation of material because I talked to an awful lot of people, but I just didn't know how to put it together. So it took me a, a long time to realize what a botch I had made of it. And um, so about oh, 10, 12 years later, I decided I would go back and do it right. And I think I had matured enough by then in terms of my abilities that I, I could do a better job of it. And it turned out I could. But I thought, well, I need to go to England, really, and see these places that he frequented and uh, where he was born, et cetera. And, oh, while well, um, I'm at it, I'll, uh, I'll do some more interviews. And so one or two new interviews turned into half a dozen and then a dozen. And uh, I interviewed his nephew, who was an Episcopal minister. And it was just a kind of a snowball effect. That became A New World of Gods and Monsters, which was published in 1998. I'm pretty happy with that one. And it's still in print to this day. So you do your first book. You Clearly, it was a great learning experience for you. You made lifelong friendships out of it. How did you get into the second book? And what what made you even think to continue down this path to keep writing? Well, uh, I I really enjoyed the research aspect of it, and I thought, I want to do more of this. I know people who do this sort of work and who do it well, who hire other people to do their library work and their interviews in some cases, et cetera, and they just wait for all this to come in, and they put it together and write it. I find the writing part of the process probably the most difficult aspect of it. And uh, if I could hire out the writing and just do the research, I'd probably be a lot happier. But the essential part of the process is when you take all this stuff that you've developed yourself and uh, it comes time to put it together so that you can see what's happening on various levels at the same general time. And you say, oh, that's what's going on here. Okay. I understand this now. Uh, That sort of thing. And uh, you really don't get those epiphanies that are so significant unless you're doing it all yourself. And uh, I know other writers who have tried doing this sort of work and they've made the error of not of relying too much on an independent researcher. And they've found out how difficult that can be because you don't have it all at your 
fingertips, in effect. And I mean by that the experience of handling the correspondence, the uh, papers that uh, you dig out of various archives, and got to see other things at the same time that kind of took you off in directions that you weren't anticipating. So it, it's it's a detective story in a sense, and I enjoy that aspect of it very much. And the guy I wanted to do next, uh, as it turned out, was Preston Sturgis, who interested me a great deal. I had seen some of his films in more recent times and uh, was enthralled by them, as a lot of people are. Because one of the things I liked about Sturgis was not necessarily that he was one of the first great writer-directors, but uh, that he considered himself a humorist in the same sense that perhaps Robert Benchley or Dorothy Parker might. But he said, I work in the medium of film. And uh, so I wanted to explore him from that aspect specifically. And nobody had done a book on Sturgis before, but there were a lot of people who included his stories about him in their own books. So there I started, I I realized that I had a uh, focus, if you will, with David being in effect the guy, the the go-to guy on James Whale. And uh, I wondered who the go-to person was for Preston Sturgis would be. And it turned out it was his widow, uh, Sandy. And so I naively once again wrote her a letter out of the blue. And I said, is this something that you could cooperate with? I was in my early 20s at the time, I think. So she called one night and said, I think it's a great idea. That was the beginning of it. I I drove out to uh, West Los Angeles to visit her one day, and uh, she pulled out uh, his manuscript for his autobiography, which he was working on when he died. And she handed those to me and told me I could take them home with me. So I was astonished by that. I've had other experiences like that as well, where people just want to give me things. I don't want the responsibility, but I'm happy to you know make photocopies and things, of course. But... Uh, uh, this is, you know, learning to work on the job in effect. And uh, uh, and uh, I was very fortunate. And uh, Burgess one actually got published. Uh, and so, and it's still around today. So uh, that's kind of how it started. I'm curious to talk a little bit about how you enjoy the research. And you've been doing this for a long time. So you've seen the shift in how we do research. But how has that process changed for you or maybe even stayed the same? Well, uh, here's the thing. Back back when I started and into the 80s, a lot of people were available to talk with. Uh, the archival resources were very limited compared to today. Nowadays, all those people are gone and uh, we're fortunate to be able to talk with their children or grandchildren. And But the archival resources have gotten much better. So that's how the pendulum has swung. And of course, ProQuest makes a big difference. Also being able to do that kind of search over a vast range of uh, newspapers and publications over a long period of time. Uh, none of that existed back then. It's a matter of knowing where to go for things and what to look for. And I think that only comes with experience. There are certain archives that I can name for you, for instance, on this last book, the Buster Keaton biography, where where I knew where there were likely some terrific primary documents and information. And someone just starting out wouldn't have a clue as to where to go or how to mine that material. I think had I not had that experience and I didn't have the ability to do the kind of um, search searching that uh, I was able to do through various online resources, this book, which took me five years to do, would probably have taken me 10 easily because I'd be sitting for hours and hours reeling through microfilm without any indices or anything to indicate what I was looking for. Just kind of like you're scanning pages and hoping to find something or seeing a particular name that jumps out at you, which is what it was back in those days. But uh, uh, 
the technology, if you harness it and use it to your benefit, is much, much better and a big help in doing this sort of work. So you can find new and wondrous things that you would never have been able to find by just eyeballing the stuff. You know, you've talked about how your first two subjects were sort of things that were of particular interest to you. Is that how you select your your projects by by interest or or, or do you sometimes find things along the way and you're like, I'm going to bookmark for that for later because that might be interesting for a project down the road? Well, I've done that, but, I, but for the, everything I've done thus far, it's stuff that I discovered at one point or another during my youth when I was watching scads of television and, and uh, picking up things. And uh, and um, I became interested in these people in my uh, later years and found there wasn't much about them or there were no books at all about them, as in the case with Princess James Whale. And so I undertook to write the book that I wish already existed. I guess that's probably the way to put it. Uh, I, But everybody that I, I have done... Uh, I can relate back to uh, being exposed to them as a child, and uh, um, and as you know, that uh, sticks with you uh, uh, when you d- discover something back when you're in your uh, your early years, and uh, because you're soaking this stuff up, and it's a formative experience for you. I'll t- give you another example: the W. C. Fields book, uh, pro- taking Fields as a subject. My father thought that Fields was the funniest guy in the world, and so I l- learned about him and watched him for the first time on television because my father was just hooting with laughter uh, watching one of his old films, and and uh, uh, that impressed me. You know that um, my father wasn't a, an easy audience in some ways, and so when somebody had that kind of impact upon him, and that was something that I wanted to know more about. So. That's another one where I, I I can draw a straight line. In fact, I think I dedicated that book to my father, and so. Uh, but he's the one that exposed me to W. C. Fields, and uh, I gave me the appreciation of his work that helped propel me into doing that book. Do you usually have multiple projects on the go, or do you find that that's too much, and you just need to concentrate on one? Yeah, I think I do one at a time. I can't. I can't do that. I, I might have an idea which I'll drop in a file somewhere on a piece of scratch paper and explore it at some other point. Uh, but in terms of working on two, the only th- the only thing I can say sometimes is that I've done is uh, if I'm traveling for other reasons and uh, I'm in a particular location and I know I'm going to do a particular subject, I'll I'll build a couple of extra days into my time. Let this happen, like say for instance, last time I was in London. I made sure that I carved out a couple of days for the British Film Institute Library, proceeded to you know, download or, or otherwise absorb anything that they had in their files or in their archives on uh, Buster Keaton. And I, I can't say it was a mother load, but it was, it was, it was a good, good amount of material, and I was able to happily uh, use all of it in one form or another when I uh, got to composing the book. But I was happy I had done that. And uh, it's much preferable to do that again myself rather than to hire someone to do it from a, a distance. I, I do that on occasion when it seems to make the best sense, but uh, I rarely like doing it whenever possible. I like to go through the stuff myself. I want to come back to the actual writing process, but you know, you mes- mentioned Buster Keaton, and of course, your latest book is on on Buster Keaton. What was it about him and his work that made you want to write this book? 
Well, I was aware of him initially, let me put it this way, as a kid, because um, he had made this not very good TV series in the uh, early 50s. And over time, I've since learned uh, it had evolved into something that they put in front of children on Saturday mornings. And so uh, that's when I first saw it was on um, television early on a Saturday morning when children's programming was usually slotted in uh, Los Angeles TV. And uh, so I knew who he was, kind of, sort of. And uh, then he showed up. You, you could see commercials that he had made. Uh, he had certainly a very recognizable face. And he guested on a lot of TV shows. He was on Ed Sullivan occasionally. He was in film shows like Route 66 and The Twilight Zone. So Buster Keaton was around. And then um, he was in It's Mad, 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 Mad World, which was uh, had a big impact on me, I think, when I saw it in 1963. And uh, he turned out to be in um, several of the Beach Party films as well, which were programmed for kids my age. So um, uh he was just included with a lot of other familiar faces. But um, so I was aware of him from that standpoint, but it wasn't until I saw one of his great independent features from the 1920s and I saw it under optimal conditions, which means with live music on a big screen with a good audience that I was really seriously impressed by his work and uh, what he was capable of doing. And uh, so that stuck with me for a lot of years. And when my editor suggested a few years ago that uh, Buster Keaton might be uh, something I'd consider, I, I embraced it instantly. I thought, yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to do Buster Keaton. And because none of the books that were out on him, none of the biographies, let me say there were three of them, uh, really rang the bell for me. Uh, and I thought there was room for yet another one, uh, one that was, uh, for want of a better word, a, a definitive and so I called a few people and um, or queried a few people uh, about whether or not they thought that I should do this. Do you think there's room for it? Uh, would it uh, or would it be redundant in your opinion? And the, the people like Leonard Malton and Kevin Brownlow uh, and uh, oh, uh, the Buster Keaton Society, International Buster Keaton Society, uh, uh, the founder of that, Patty Patty Tobias. I checked with her. Uh, I checked with the Keaton family and I said, do you folks think this is something I should do? Do you want to see me do it? And, and, uh, unanimously they all said, yeah, go ahead, please do. And so I took it on and, uh, I'm very glad I did. I, I discovered a great deal about him. I thought I knew the story and it's broad outlines and I guess I did, but, uh, there was so much more to dig into in terms of motivations and surrounding factors that had, uh, uh, impact on what happened to him and the decisions that were made about him and that he made himself. And so, uh, uh, I, it was, it was a subject that I was primed for and somebody, one of the things you have to think about also with, uh, doing this kind of work since if you do it right, it does take several years is, uh, uh, can I stand to live with this subject for that period of time? And there are people that I contemplated doing that, uh, the more I learned about them, uh, the darker the story got. And I, I had to ultimately wonder, do, do, is this something I want to spend five years with, five or six years with in some cases? And uh, the answer is invariably no. I, I, For whatever reason, it's just not not something that appeals to me. But, uh, you know, you've got to be, you, you've got to have a certain level of enthusiasm and interest in order to sustain yourself over a, a period like that, because there's a lot of 
time and drudgery involved in it. And uh, you, you need to know that uh, or go into it uh, convinced that it's going to be something that's worthwhile. If the folks that you had queried had said, no, don't pursue this, would you have stepped away from it? Probably. I'll tell you one thing that I've always insisted upon is um, I'm, I want the cooperation of the people who I think have the most to contribute in terms of primary knowledge about the subject and, and are willing to answer questions. And I'm, I'm not one of those guys that comes in and does a so-called unauthorized biography, because I think whatever you're gaining in terms of scandalous material, if we want to call it that, you're losing in terms of access to deeper and more relevant material. And ultimately, I want to know the real story. I want to know really what happened in a particular instance with somebody like that. And I want to be able to talk to the people who might know the answer or might have a piece of the answer. And doing something uh, that's more adversarial in nature uh, robs you a lot of that. So, and, and there are people out there, let's face it, who are not very good at this work and who do it just to, you know, make a living, let's say. And I don't think they're as interested in enlightenment so much as they are in titillating an audience and relieving them of their, their, their money. I'm not interested in that. I'm, I, if I go after something, it's because I want to know really what happened, what was going on. I want to understand it as clearly as I can. What was the most interesting thing that you discovered about Buster Keaton as you were writing this project? Well, there are a couple of things, one of which were, was that his best films, his greatest films were made by a, a company, a business entity known as Buster Keaton Productions Incorporated. And I was very surprised to discover that uh, among the 10 owners of Buster Keaton Productions Incorporated, Buster Keaton was not one of them. He was a salaried employee of that company, but there were other investors who actually owned that company. And when they decided that they didn't want to stand the risk or the exposure that came with funding his feature films, uh, they wanted out and he lost that particular platform. The other thing that surprised me was how difficult it was during Buster Keaton's lifetime to see his films. If you live near the Museum of Modern Art in New York, which had its own film library and had several of Keaton's great films as part of their uh, collection, uh, that was one thing. But if you lived in another part of the country, uh, you were severely limited in what you could see of his greatest work. And uh, so that surprised me a great deal. It was only at really the very end of his life, he died very early in 1966, that it was possible to see his films a little uh, more widely than than it had been for a long time. Today, he'd be delighted, I think, to know that all of his output is on uh, YouTube and uh, people around the world can access it for free. I think he'd be very pleased that his work was out there and is appreciated as much as it is today. You've mentioned how the actual writing process is not the thing that you enjoy the most. I'm wondering, what does that writing process look like for you? And how do you combat writer's block? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I I don't think I've ever really experienced writer's block. I, I experience subject block. It, it, it takes me time to figure out what I want to do if I'm going to take on a project of this length and size. But once I get into it, I've got all the material in front of me pretty much. And if I discover I need something more, then I know how to go about getting it. But there is a part of 
just, you know, there is a certain amount of drudgery involved in going from day to day and producing, you know, a couple of pages a day and ending up with a 800-page uh, manuscript at the end of the process and holding all that stuff together, making a cohesive story, keeping a reader inter interested at the same time, making sure you're telling the truth as well as you possibly can. So there are a lot of, in some cases, conflicting demands that are placed upon you, and you've got to figure it out as best you can. Also, on a more basic level, writing is a very solitary function. Uh, I don't think there's any real mystery into why so many great authors have also been alcoholics of their, of their own, because uh, it's, a, it's a solitary, insecure sort of endeavor. And Sometimes it goes better than other times. And um, if you're in the process of, you know, rewriting something for the fifth time, then that gets to be tough. But I, th I think, for instance, just to give you an example, in the W.C. Fields book, I wanted to describe as best I could his vaudeville act, which was centered around uh, a, a trick pool table, and he would essentially shoot pool on stage. But how the table reacted and how the balls reacted were all under his control. I could go back to contemporary accounts of what people saw in the theater, but they're frequently incomplete. And what I was trying to do was understand from the time he walked out to stage until he marched off, presumably to great applause, what took place. I think I probably rewrote my account of that particular experience maybe 12, 15 times. I, I kept changing it as I got more information. And it's a matter of putting together a puzzle in a sense. And you're trying to, you, you realize what you need and what you don't have that you wish you had. And how do you work around that? And, uh, you know, there are times when you have a, a surfeit of material on something that's not terribly important. And then you don't have as much material as you certainly wish you had on another aspect of somebody's life. So the question is, how do you get around that? Where where are your beats? Where are your heights and your your lows, your 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 uh, story points and what they add up to? And that's something you just have to have a natural sense of. In other words, what is your research in effect telling you? And what direction is it leading you in? And you've got to be flexible enough to be able to respond to what you're finding and what you're learning as you go through the process. I think some people who do nonfiction go in with a very rigid structure of what they're expecting to find, and they end up, if they're not careful, cherry-picking their material in order to fit that structure. And that's not what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be responding to what uh, the material your research is telling you. And you need to be sensitive to that. I'm um, thinking now of um, a particular writer, for instance, who said not that long ago that uh, creative nonfiction is not making things up. It's making the most of what you have to work with. And I think that's a distinction. Because you're doing all of this research, and I know that sometimes you have deadlines that you're working towards, but how do you know that a project is finished, that, that you've done everything you can do and told the story that you want to tell? Because technically, you could keep this going for a long time further. So when do you know that you're done? To some degree, I think what I end up doing is thinking broadly in terms of the three-act structure. With, with Keaton, I started out, and he had kind of an odd life in some ways, because from the age of five on, he knew nothing but success. I mean, first on the vaudeville stage and then uh, in films. At the age of 35, all of a sudden it comes 
all comes tumbling down around him, then he's in for a long period of struggle. And my challenge with him is figuring out what the third act was. If if you're building this great uh, body of work and then circumstances cause everything to be, become disrupted, this wonderful period of time, creative period of time is, is disrupted. And uh, so what's the ultimate payoff here? I started writing the book. I, I used to take pride sometimes in knowing what my last line was when I started writing something, but I didn't know that in this case. And ultimately, I decided the third act was rediscovery that he spends the first act, in effect, creating this body of work. And the third act is spent digging it out of the archival ashes, if you will, and uh, putting it in front of new generations of people who uh, appreciate it as much as it was appreciated 60, 70 years previously in some cases. Now here we are, we're really a century removed from his most creative period. And I think he's probably more popular today than he ever was in his lifetime. This actually leads into my next question, which is one of the things that I'm always curious about is, you know, you've spent, you know, a big chunk of your creative life doing research on and, and, and writing and speaking about films and creators from basically a century ago. Why is it important that we keep this knowledge alive? I like to think of biography in the best instances as being um, inspirational. And I personally have been interested in the creative process, which for me has handled, has settled pretty much on the aspect of film and to a lesser extent television. But uh, you could apply it to writers as it's been done in a lot of cases, et cetera. Um, a lot of things are creative in life. In each case, these people faced a lot of adversity. They, they, uh, had to believe in themselves, and at the same time, they had to have that mysterious something that that enabled them to be as creative and as distinctive as they were. And I think people today who have similar gifts or think they do and are going to become our next generation of creative minds, of creative figures they need to be able to go back and look at things that that inspire them in terms of creative work, regardless of when they were done, and um, derive a certain amount of strength and knowledge and insight from them. And I think that's where good biography comes into play. It's it's not just a history lesson so much as it's it's about a single human being putting forth a unique and distinctive intellect and a, and a, a creativity, a, a sense of artistry that resonates as much today as it did, you know, 70 years ago. And in a case like, say, for instance, Preston Sturgis, to use an example. And uh, so there's value in understanding those stories and there's value in telling those stories as accurately as possible. In other words, that if somebody comes to a work that you've created about a given subject, that uh, you have a pact with them in effect where they understand and agree as you do that, that they can count on you to tell them the truth and they can count on you for rational analysis and uh, to give them something they can take away from it. I, you know, obviously you want someone to enjoy what you've done and there's no greater compliment than when someone says, I was sorry when the book ended. 
And uh, that's, that's, that's a great feeling when you hear that. But that means also that somebody who's saying that took something away from it. And so there's, there's value beyond just simply whiling away your hours reading something for the sake of reading it. There's something that you, um, you glean from it that uh, is valuable. Was there a book that, you know, spoke to you that way? You know, one I liked a lot, uh, it didn't come early necessarily, but I, I really, really responded to it well, was uh, Scott Berg's biography of Max Perkins, the great Scribner's editor. And uh, I think the thing that really grabbed me about that was not only the the tough lives that these guys that we consider such giants today, like Fitzgerald and um, Hemingway, uh, Thomas Wolfe, people like that, that in their times, they didn't have an easy time of it. They had money worries. They had creative worries. They had specifically, Scott Fitzgerald, he did not have a long life to look forward to. So uh, someone asked Preston Sturgis one time what, what his philosophy of life was, and he said, living in anticipation of death. So I do think that people are driven to a certain degree by a sense of how much time they have to make an impact. And that they're going to leave something behind and something that's valuable and that will live. So I, I think that stretches over all manner of media and uh, the people that work in 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 those various categories that uh, I think there's a terrific value to being able to tell the stories of earlier generations and what they went through. That's true in a lot of a lot of subject areas and you know in history, et cetera. And uh, various movements that we see, social and otherwise. So uh, all of that is important, and I, I do think there's great value in it. I'm wondering, is that what drives you, this this idea that you want to leave something behind that's memorable? I guess so. I guess so. It's, it's it, The process is part of it, but at the end of it, the process is not in itself the point. It's have you delivered something that's worthwhile and that could indeed have an impact or, or create a level of inspiration for somebody, a, a, a new artist, let's say. So I, I think that's the other piece of it that uh, leads to a level of satisfaction, regardless of whether you make any money doing this sort of work or not. It's, it's more a question of, did you produce something that you can be proud of? I know that, you know, the Buster Keaton book has not been out that long, but are you already working on something else? No, not right now. There I, there I go with the subject uh, freeze again. Uh, I think that I'll get to some point. I've got some ideas and a couple of things in mind, but uh, I haven't solved the essential problem yet of how I'm going to tell the story and how I'm going to engage the reader, or at least attempt to. So uh, as of right now, I'm, I've got some things rolling around in my mind, but uh, there's nothing that's uh, a lock right now. So I meant to ask this, and I, I it, it escaped me when we were talking about it. But you mentioned how you know you need to be able to commit for an extended period of time, like years of your life. Is there when you're doing when you're starting to kind of put together ideas on who or what you might want to cover next? Do you allow yourself like a certain amount of time that you're going to look at something before you decide whether that's going to be your next project and then leave it, or do you just kind of go with the flow until you kind of feel that you have enough? I guess it's a combination of both. I'll use an example of um, the last book that I did, which was published in 2017, was a biography of uh, Canada's own Mort Saul. And uh, 
I there is somebody else again I was exposed to on television when I was a kid, and I was always fascinated by him. And he was uh, actually a living subject. He just he just actually died this last year. So I thought this would be an interesting challenge using uh, doing a, a living subject. Uh, most of my others would have been dead, and so. I didn't get a lot of talk back from them, but uh, I, I knew in this particular case I was uh, in grave danger of talk back. So I approached it gingerly, let's say, and made the inquiries, et cetera. And boy, it was tough to get past his defenses. And I called my wife and that the first day. I, he was living up above San Francisco at the time in Mill Valley. And I, I, we had had a, we were, I was going to start to uh, record uh, talks with him, which ultimately turned into be about 40 hours of material. And I said, after the first day, I called my wife and I said, I don't know if I can do this, but I was willing to stick it out at least a little bit to see if like, we could make some breakthroughs. And it sure took a while. He's a, he was a suspicious man, uh, understandably so, though that was his nature as well. But we finally landed on a level of mutual respect, let's put it that way. And, um, I got to the point where he would open up and he would say, you know, he would answer any question I asked him and he would give me a very direct and straight answer. So I think we ended up with a good book, but I wasn't sure how I was going to uh, soften them up, let's put it that way. But ultimately it turned out that what, what our common ground was, for instance, was that we both are big jazz fans and Mort came up in the era when a lot of people were out there and doing what they're doing, doing what they were doing. And, uh, he was part of that whole scene. By God, he, he he opened for Billy Holiday in Chicago and Duke Ellington here in California, and uh, and the fact that the musicians embraced him so thoroughly because he was the guy that there was no place for a stand-up like him to play back when he started in 1953. Stand-up comics were Bob Hope and Henny Youngman, and they came out in evening clothes and uh, told jokes about mothers-in-law and, uh, you know, how fat their wife was and all that stuff, you know, back in those days. And occasionally there were political jibes, but they weren't terribly sharp or, or let's say, uh, brutal as they became later on. But Mort was able to open up the jazz clubs, the major jazz clubs in the United States to spoken word acts like uh, like himself and the comedians that came in his wake once he had he'd established the circuit, if you will. And uh, you had people like Shelley Berman and Mike Nichols and Elaine May and um, ultimately Woody Allen, who uh, followed his, uh, Lenny Bruce, another one, uh, um, who followed his lead. So in that respect, uh, he changed the culture. He, he told a story one time, which I thought was just quintessential for him and how he was embraced. Uh, Birdland in New York, the famous jazz club, uh, had instituted a matinee policy where they were serving lunch and uh, they'd have a performer working while they were lunching. And in this particular case, it was the great pianist and uh, composer Lenny Tristano who was on the stand during the course of this one day. And Mort wandered in one of his in frequent times in New York and uh, uh, Tristano's uh, accompanist who, uh, whose name escapes me at the moment said, Hey, Mort's here. And Tristano was blind. So Tristano says to um, Mort, uh, you want to sit in with us? Now Mort didn't play an instrument and he didn't sing or anything like that. He was, but whatever musicality came from how he delivered his, his thoughts. And uh, Mort played along with it. He said, I, I God, I would, but I haven't, haven't got my ax with me. With that, Tristano reached under the piano bench and produced a copy of the New York Times and handed it to him. So, 
So I, I think that's the quintessential thing about, about Mort was that uh, uh, he was so wedded to the music and so part of that culture. And that's today you think about Bill Maher or uh, John Stewart, people like that who deal in political comedy and do so with a very sharp edge. They, you can draw a straight line between Mort's debut in San Francisco at the Hungry Eye in 1953 and uh, where they are today, where we are today. And uh, so that's a remarkable career. And I, I'm very glad that I did it when I did. Do you ever sort of do a double take that you are living your life doing and working in a career that is so fulfilling and in the same time for yourself and and for others as well? You're you're sharing so much knowledge and so much history. I I, th- I think it's I've, I've always thought myself as very lucky that I could do that and uh, that I had the good luck in my business career to be able to do this sort of work now and uh, not particularly worry about uh, you know where my next meal is coming from. So yeah, it, it's it's something that you stop and think about sometimes. Say, hey, that that turned out pretty well, didn't it? Uh, but. I don't sit around contemplating that on an hourly basis. It's more like uh, occasionally it just kind of settles in and you think, okay, well, I'm, so this is this is nice, isn't it? <laughs> but it's something, you know, that just happens over a period of time and that you ultimately end up making for yourself. And uh, I didn't set out to do this necessarily, but it uh, it kind of worked out nicely. Do you have any insights or tips for anyone out there that might be interested in getting into the biography game or writing about history? Yeah, get a side hustle, uh, so- something that you can uh, you can use for income because there's a lot of lean times in something like this. You know, the the, the uh, traditionally, you know, you're supposed when you get a deal with a publisher that they give you an advance, the advance is supposed to help you. Um, you know, pay for the the research aspects of it. Well, the the stark economics of it uh, is that if you're depending on that kind of money to support yourself, you're going to be eating your next meal out of the trash dumpster down the street. Uh, It's more a situation where you've got to look out for yourself and then um, uh, figure out a balance between the work you want to do and the work that you have to do. At some point, if everything works out nicely, then uh, you don't have to have that worry so much or that conversation with yourself. But uh, it's always nice to have a balance in business or income that's as important as in emotional uh, life and uh, any other kind of healthy healthy situation where uh, you you sought the balance and you've been able to achieve it. And that was our conversation with biographer James Curtis. You can find out more about James and all of his books on his website at jamescurtis.net. The Sparkcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. Opening and closing credits, as well as additional production support by Michael Edland. For more about SparkCG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.